Well, good morning. Good to be with you this morning. My name is Ryan Moore, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here at the church. This morning, we'll be looking at the book of Matthew in chapter 26. Uh, but as you've heard already, we are in a series on the Lord's Prayer, and we look at the third petition, Thy will be done. And that is going to be our primary focus this morning as we look at that through uh, the story in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verse 36 to 46. If you have that, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word found in the book of Matthew, beginning in verse 36 of chapter 26. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and he prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for a third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that at this very moment that we would not be people who would listen and live out of the lies that Satan would send our way, but that we would listen and live out of your truth that comes from your word. So would you do that this morning for your glory, we pray. Amen. I heard a story recently of a parent in a grocery store who was, for all practical purposes, struggling with a two-year-old. And this two-year-old was running around, making lots of noise, pulling stuff off the shelves. And over and over, the parent was trying so hard to get the child's attention, to get the child to settle down and be quiet. You know, you probably have been there if you have kids. Stay with a cart. Don't touch that. No, we can't buy any more candy. Please be quiet. And this went on for a while until finally the parent, obviously getting to their end of the rope, the rope's end, I guess, uh, has to get stern and grabs the child and says, Be quiet. Sit down. And that child staring right back into the eyes of that parent, begins to sit down, lip quivering, but never losing sight, and says to that parent, I may be sitting down, but inside, I'm standing up. (laughs) That could have been you, could have been me as a child for sure. This week, we come to the part of the Lord's Prayer as we say that says, thy will be done. And at the heart, what we are doing when we go go to the Lord in prayer We are submitting our own wills to his. And true prayer is saying, not my will be done, 
but thy will, O Lord, be done. It is to say no to our desires and our wants and the things that we think even that we, what would make us happy and to want the desires and to want the things that God wants and that reflect his kingdom. But the problem for all of us this morning is that all of us have this little bitty two-year-old residing inside of us. And all this two, little two-year-old wants is what any two-year-old would want is their wants and desires and anything that will make them happy. It is the battle of the wills. And that's why theologian Peter Kreft says, thy will be done is the easiest thing in the world to understand, but it is the hardest thing in the world to do. Christian writer C.S. Lewis put it this way. that says that there are two types of people in this world. There are those that say to God in the end, thy will be done, right? Or there are those that God says in the end, thy will be done, and he concludes all those that are in hell, choose it. Wow. <clears throat> well, every generation sings about this battle. Every generation uh, fights this battle because we all as humans struggle with the battle of the wills. One generation has Sinatra's words or song, I did it my way, which we maybe know and love, while another has the words of Eddie Vedder, one of my heroes, who writes a song titled, I am mine, and writes the words, I know that I was born and I know that I will die, but the in-between is mine. I am mine. Well, whether we are four, 40, or 400 someday, the battle, the will, will remain. And there will be two kinds of people until then or until Jesus comes back in which there will be one kind of person, those who want nothing else but thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so what does that look like for us to pray this petition, thy will be done? And maybe, maybe to press, press in a little further this morning for you, why would anybody want to pray this? Right? Why would we want to pray? Why would we want to give up our will? After all, isn't that what makes me human is to have a will of my own? Why would I want to to say no to that and welcome in and bring in the will of somebody else. Maybe that's your question this morning. That is what my aim is, is sort of getting at why we might even want to do that in the first place. As we learn what it is to pray that will be done. And so on your handout there, uh, you don't have an outline. Here it is. There's two points, and I want to look at three implications of this, this, these points. The first point is the real question behind all prayer. The second point is how we begin to pray that will be done, and then we'll look at three implications of what that looks like. So the real question behind all prayer and how we begin to pray that will be done. Let's look at that first one, the real question behind all of prayer. Let me start with a metaphor to help us understand where we are in the prayer itself. If we think of the Lord's Prayer as this hourglass, right? This line, thy will be done, sits at the narrowest part of that hourglass. That means that everything before the prayer gets us ready for this part in one sense, and everything after is shaped by this one part because everything hinges or comes down to this part, which is essentially asking, are you going to be God or are you going to let God be God? And that is the question behind all of prayer. Are you going to be God, or are you going to let God be God? Before this, is God truly your Heavenly Father? Is He truly good? Is He truly your aim? And then after this, will you trust Him for your daily bread, which we'll look at next week? 
to lead you into forgiveness, not temptation, and to deliver you from evil. But if we don't recognize that the essence of prayer is submitting our wills to God's, then we are not really praying at all. Which is why everything comes down to this line in one sense. This is the struggle that all of us have. And where did this struggle begin? This struggle began in a garden called Eden in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. We learn here, what we learn here in Genesis 3 is that Adam and Eve, our first parents, were created to live lives, what, dependent upon God. Much like a two-year-old with his parents or her parents, but instead of living in dependence, Adam and Eve sought individual happiness, we could put it that way. And where would they think to find this happiness in asserting their will over God's will? Let's define this term quickly, if, if, if we can. Uh, what do we mean when we say will, God's will? Because if we're going to be praying it, it'd be good if we understood it. Well, God's will in Scripture is often talked about in two ways. And first, there's his revealed, or his, yeah, we'll say his revealed will, um, which is what he tells us, what he shares with us, which is what we find in Scripture. An example of that might be the Ten Commandments, or sometimes we talk about this as his moral will. It is to love God and neighbor, those types of things. Another way to understand his will is to talk about it as his secret will, um, what he hasn't revealed to us. Uh, what only the mind of God knows. And this is, this is the will that controls all things and directs them to their end. So when we pray that will be done, wh which one are we praying here? Well, we're kind of praying for both in a sense. We're praying that, one, God's will, his, his plans for all fruition will come to, 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 to be. But we're also praying that he would allow us to be obedient to his revealed will, the things that he has asked of us to do, Okay. That's a little bit about what that word means. When we get to the garden, though, of Eden, we see God's revealed will to Adam and Eve in chapter 2, where he puts Adam in the garden. He says in verse 16, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day when you eat it, you shall surely die. In other words, God is saying, Adam, here's what I want for you. It's revealed. I want you to have it all. And you could substitute yourself in there if you want to for a second. I want you to rule over and steward my creation. I want you to experience the joy that comes from that and the pleasure of knowing that your obedience pleases me. And just so you can know what love is and that it's possible out of all these trees, out of all the garden, I'm claiming one tree off limits. You are free to move about the cabin, as it were, enjoying all that this garden has. And all, and, and, and all the places that this garden grows and takes you. But this one tree, you will leave alone. For in submitting your will to mine, I will know you love me. And in trusting me and my goodness towards you, you will know that I love you and that I have kept no good thing from you. And we will live together. And of course, the same goes for Eve when she is created and placed in the garden with Adam. But by Genesis 3, there's a break. There is a fall. Adam and Eve decide they no longer want to live by the words, thy will be done. They instead want to live by the words, my will be done. And so they take matters into their own hands, eating the fruit of the tree from which God forbid them. Now, let me stop there for a second. It is crucial for us today 
to bring this into our own sort of context, to recognize how Satan hits Adam and Eve. And he doesn't do it with force. He doesn't do it with threats. He does it with an idea. Because this is how he also hits us today. Pastor and author Mark Sayers calls this soft power. Soft power is the subtle attempt to lure someone into doing something what you want them to do or securing a certain outcome. This is soft power. By contrast, hard power is the aggressive coming in with guns loaded to take you down tactic in order to persuade you or secure a certain outcome. Soft power is more subtle but way more deadly. It's ideas, not force. And that's what Satan tempts Eve with here, an idea. And what is that idea, friends? It is the idea that God is not good. Eve, you can have it all. You can do it yourself. You can do it your way and your own. You are your own. And you deserve all the rights that go along with that. God, he's just keeping the good life from you. He's keeping you from actually realizing your full potential and happiness with all of his rules. Did God actually say, y'all shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Do you hear it? It's the idea that God is not good, that he's keeping something from you. And again, that is an example of soft power because Satan knows that he cannot win with hard power. By forcing Adam and Eve to disobey, he has to get them to desire it. And he pitches an idea to do that. And the idea is the false reality that every two-year-old has, which is, I don't need anyone. I can do it myself. And it's been with us ever since. Author Jaron Bars puts it this way, the mentality of, I will do it myself, I don't need the Lord. What we might call the mindset of a two-year-old is the very heart and essence of the fall, the original sin of Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve. And once Adam and Eve are kicked out of this garden, they are left to themselves and the choices they have made to live by my will be done, which ultimately we see leads to death. And to labor this point in order to understand where we are today, it's important to see that in the garden, we no longer desired God. And what God wanted for us. And this is what the Bible calls sin. It's to no longer desire what God, your creator, wants for you. It is instead to want to be God. We wanted our desires fulfilled, much like a two-year-old. The idea that Satan planted in the minds of Adam and Eve, though, is still prevalent as ever, if not more so today. Western culture would say, who you are is your desire. You want to marry whoever you want to marry? Do it. You want to eat whatever you want to eat? Who's stopping you? You want to spend your money and whatever it is you want to spend your money on? Go for it. Why? Because those are your desires. You do you. Desire is king. Serve yourself. And here's the thing that we all have to admit in this room is that sounds so good. That sounds right. 
It feels right. Right? We, why, why would we not want that? But it's hollow. It's death. It is soft power. Here, take this fruit, which is self-will and autonomy, which is the desire to be God yourself, which looks good for food and a delight to the eyes, and take a bite. And here's the deal. The problem this morning is that all of us in this room have taken a bite. All of us come into this world desiring nothing but our will to be done. And this is why you don't have to teach a two-year-old to be selfish or self-centered. It is baked in. But we say, look, I just think I'm the only one qualified to live and run my life. Well, that's you playing God, isn't it? In reality, though, we are scared. We have unprecedented levels of anxiety today, depression, about future, about the future and things we can't control. And the reason for this, the Bible tells us, is because we weren't created to live autonomous, I did it my way lives. We think it sounds good and that living life my way will make me the happiest, but it doesn't. Instead, what the Bible is trying to tell us and is trying to tell you this morning is that you were created for dependence, like it or not. <laughs> you were created to walk with God in the garden, as it were, and though it seems counter to our feelings and desires for happiness, the best thing, the best thing that you could ever do as a human being is learn to pray, thy will be done. But to do that, you've got to let somebody else be God. This means you have to dethrone yourself. And that's what this line is doing for us. And why it gets at the real question behind all prayer. Are you going to be God? Or are you going to let God be God? Okay, so how do we do that? How do we dethrone ourselves? How do we become people who truly pray that will be done? Well, we have to see God as our Father, as the Lord's Prayer begins. And we have to trust and see that He is good. Well, how do we do that? We have to look at Jesus. And this gets to the second point, how we begin to pray that will be done. And this gets us to Matthew. As we turn to chapter 26 in Matthew's gospel, we come to what? Another garden. No coincidence. And in this way, Jesus comes to us as a second Adam, if you will, to live out a life of dependence upon the Father, to do his will, to obey his Father's commands and not his own. And this life of dependence, friends, ultimately leads to his death. In this scene, he is hours away from being arrested, beaten, and put on a cross to die. And what does Jesus do then? What does he do in this hour? He prays. And what does he pray? Verse 39, look at it. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. This is one of three prayers like this. First, what is this cup that he's talking about? This cup is a metaphor used throughout the entire Old Testament to symbolize God's wrath. Isaiah 51, 17 says this, Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath. 
It is the cup that none of us want to drink from. It's the cup that none of us would volunteer to drink from. And thankfully, it's the cup that none of us can drink from. We don't have to. In fact, just a little further in Isaiah, in verse 22, God says that he will take the cup away. He says, I'll take it away. You will no longer have to drink it. And the reason we don't have to drink that cup, friends, is because of Jesus and what he's about to do for us on the cross. Back in Matthew, verse 42, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. See, in an astonishing moment of pain and suffering, Jesus doesn't pursue personal happiness here, does he? He doesn't cave to his own desires. He doesn't invent some existential mantra of I am mine and march out of the garden declaring his autonomy. Instead, he speaks honestly with his father and then he defers. And why? Because Jesus trusts his father in heaven. Jesus knows that his father is good. He knows that his Father's will is the best and the most important thing, even better than his own will to let the cup pass. And in this exchange in Matthew, we learn something important about praying that will be done, and that is you will never submit your will to God the Father or a spouse or a friend or anyone for that matter if you do not trust them. If you don't think that they are truly good, Tim Keller, in his wonderful book on prayer, puts it this way, unless we are profoundly certain God is our Father, we will never be able to say, thy will be done. What's comforting to know, though, from Matthew 26 is that Jesus thinks the Father is good, and that may seem obvious, but don't overlook it. Jesus knows the Father better than anyone, so much that he's willing to say, my Father, if it cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. But look, This is what's important about this text at this point. Jesus isn't offering us just another example of what it looks like to pray that will be done. Do not take that from this text. What we see here in the Gethsemane scene is not be like Jesus who obeys his Father, although that's good. The Gethsemane scene, though, is a scene, uh, what we see there is how good the Father is because of what he is doing for you in Jesus Christ. If you miss that, you miss the whole gospel. Jesus is taking the cup of God forsakenness so that God the Father could be your Father. You're not getting another rule here. You're actually having somebody do something for you that you cannot do. And that is grace. We don't deserve it. And he's doing this so that we could have Eden again forever, but better. For this to happen, though, Jesus has to drink the cup. Jesus, the only one who has ever been truly dependent on the Father, is going to become all of your rebellion, all of my rebellion, all of your self-centeredness, all of my self-centeredness, all of your will be done in arrogance so that God's wrath, what it deserves, will be poured out and satisfied on a cross. To put it another way, all the times that you say, have said, or will say in your heart, though I am sitting down inside, I am standing up, Jesus dies for that hellish desire so that you could receive pardon. 
And then through the Holy Spirit, begin to see those hellish desires actually transformed into what your Father in heaven desires. And that, friends, is where true life is found. So how do we, we begin to pray that will be done? We have to see and trust that the Father is actually good. And how do we do that or how are we reminded of that? We have to look at Jesus. Don't go anywhere else. Look at Jesus. Look at what he's doing for you and this new life that he's creating for you. <clears throat> so what does that new life look like? What does it look like to wake up each day learning to pray that will be done? And this is where we'll end the rest of our sermon with these three uh, quick implications that I, I hope are helpful for us as we as a church learn to pray, but also learn to pray this um, <clears throat> petition. And the first implication is this, is that, is that praying this and learning to pray and living out that will be done looks like active dependence. Active dependence. Again, you were created to be, excuse me, you were not created to be autonomous selves. You were created to live in and out of dependence upon God. So when we pray this prayer, we are saying something that initially feels, or should probably feel in one sense, backwards. It goes against every instinct that you might even have because it means we have to give up control and trust that someone else might be more qualified to direct our lives. If you've ever spent any time learning how to kayak in whitewater rapids, and I can't remember if I've shared this story, forgive me if I have, you learn quickly that life in water goes against every instinct that you have, especially when you are strapped to a boat, and that boat turns over and goes upside down when you are in a rapid, okay? Um, I experienced this with a friend of mine uh, several years ago in, in college, and uh, we were going over this rapid, and my friend did not get enough uh, what we call boat speed to get over the rapid and out of the hole, and a hole is where water keeps uh, dumping into uh, this pocket. And so the, the hole pulled the boat back in, it flipped the boat over, and there he was upside down, and, and, and sort of in a panic he bails, and bails is the word where you, know, you pull the skirt off the boat to, to swim free. And what do you want to do in that moment when you are underwater with a rapid, you know, in the middle, midst of a rapid, and you are swimming and you're running out of oxygen, you want to swim up. It is every bit of your instinct, isn't it? To go for air. That's where life is. But the problem with that is that if you, if you continue to try to swim up, you'll never make it because you're constantly fighting against the entire river that is always pouring over you. And so if you want to live in this moment, you actually have to go against your instincts and you have to swim down. Because it's only when you swim down does the water and the river push you out where you can then surface and get oxygen. The same is true when we begin to move from a life of self-will and autonomy to thy will and dependence on God. It is not easy, and the reason it's not easy is because we must give up your, our control of what you think, of what we think is the best way to live life and trust that God is good and knows what he is doing. And friends, at first, that is going to feel like going against every single one of your instincts. You wake, every, you wake up every morning and you are told through a thousand different messages that the way to happiness is to swim up, as it were. But to truly live, you have to depend on the words of another. You have to trust another. You have to swim down, as it were, and give up that control. But in so doing, you have the added assurance that, through, that though this feels backwards to me, there's actually something comforting about it. 
and nice. It's almost as if this is what I was created for. And those that have trusted the Lord in very difficult times and places know what that feeling is like. It feels backwards, but there's something about it as I travel through life with my Father in heaven, listening to him, living a life of dependence upon God, active dependence. Then it's just a way to say, when life brings us to those tough places, I'm going to swim down. I'm going to trust God, trust that he is good and that he knows what is best. I'm going to actively pray and to ask for thy will to be done. And in so doing, I'm actually then living out the prayer itself. That's the first thing. And we must practice it every day. The second thing is that we must learn, or as we pray, that will be done. We see that it begins to create a growing hunger and thirst for the word of God in us. And why is that? Because if we're going to pray, and if we're going to discern God's will for our lives, then we have got to know who this God is that we are praying to. And more importantly, what he desires, what he likes, what he, what he wants for us, his revealed will, if you will. And how do you do that? You read the Bible. That's what it's for. What Jesus gives the ability Let me ask it this way. What gives Jesus the ability to say, not my will be done, but your will be done, is that he trusts the Father, right? He knows the Father is good. But what gets Jesus to see that the cross for him is God's will? And it's his word. What did Jesus say to Satan in the desert when he was being tempted back in chapter 4 of Matthew? He says, man should not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. What is he doing there? He's quoting Deuteronomy 8. And he does that throughout Scripture. He lives and breathes the word of God. How does Jesus know that God's will is not for this cup to pass him, but for him to go to the cross? It's because he knows his Bible or the Old Testament in this point. And that's the human side of Jesus that we all don't quite understand. But you really have to enter into his humanity here in this text, here in the garden. Look, he is distressed, he is scared, and he is sorrowful even unto death. He would rather die than to have this moment happen at this point. But he goes to pray, and three different times he pleads for the Lord to let this cup pass because he doesn't want it if there is another way. Why does he even have to say Father, not as I will, but as you will, is because he's human. And he is honestly discerning what the next step is for him. But by verse 45, it is clear. The hour has come. It is at hand, Jesus says. And how does he know? He knows because all of God's word in the Old Testament leading up to this point says someone else will take this cup. Someone else will free my people. Someone else will be despised and rejected, acquainted with grief, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. And all throughout the Old Testament, that cup is passed over Israel and over you, and it lands in the hands of our Messiah. He knows this, is, this cup is for him. And he takes it. And it's been the Father's plan to fix our rebellion all along. What gives him the ability to do that? God's word. He 
He knows this is his vocation. This is what he wants him to do. He's the one. For us to learn to pray and live out, thy will be done, we cannot do that apart from reading God's word where we learn and discover what God loves and what his will is for us, both his moral and, and, and his, you know, his precepts and his law, but also his secret will, where we submit to things unknown to us, but what we know is best for us in the end, because that's what any good parent wants, right? Even when it seems scary and might cost us everything, sometimes God's will be done is to move and to love a new, unfamiliar place. Sometimes it's not getting that promotion. Sometimes it's not having your plans work out the way that you want them to, even when it seems like it would be better if they did. But here's what God's will be done never means. It never means he doesn't love you. As Pastor Rankin Wilburn says, even when God's will leads to the cross, it still leads to life. And to follow Jesus, we all now must pick up our crosses daily, but we do so knowing that the ultimate battle over death is won, do we not? Hunger and thirst leads to knowing the God that you are praying to, which leads to knowing his desires. And in the midst of discerning, which job you should take or where you should go, which path, the actual decision then becomes less important than the new desires and the new values and wants that you take with you into that new place. That's what it means to pray this. Because you know the Father. You know Him better tomorrow than you knew Him today. And his will is that you would want what he wants in any circumstance you find yourself in. Adam didn't want what God wanted in every circumstance. And that's what sin is. But Jesus did, and because of him, we are now tasked with the vocation as ambassadors of Christ to bring God's will into all spheres of life. Is forgiveness needed here? Bring it. Is justice needed here? Fight for it. Does somebody I, I live with or I work with need mercy? Offer it. That is what it means to bring his will into these places. Learning to live, thy will be done, creates a growing hunger and thirst for the word of God because the more we know him, the more we know that what his will is, his desires become our desires. One pastor puts it this way, we get one of two things and we pray, God, thy will be done. We either get that thing or we get what we would pray for if we knew all that God knew. But even still, we move out in faith. Okay, praying and living out, that will be done. Looks like active dependence, a hunger and thirst for his word. Lastly, and I'll end with this, it looks like daily surrender. Which means, friends, that something has to die in us daily so that new life in following the will of the Father can take root. As simple as it sounds, what ends any war between a person or a country? It's surrender. It's surrender. To pray that will be done is for, for, for it to happen, to end the war going on inside of you and what is going on outside of you in God's will. It is a death 
that you and I will die 10,000 times 10,000 in the course of your life. But the promise of surrender is not that some regime will come in and make you a slave in the worst sense, which is what we all fear. I don't want to do unhappy things. I don't want to be a slave to somebody else. That's not going to happen. That is not the promise of surrender here. The promise of surrender is actually that you would no longer be a slave. To sin, that is. But to learn to live. That's how the gospel sets us free. We do not live every day in light of uncertainty, friends. We live each day in light of what? Resurrection. And the hope of resurrection gives us the power every day to wake up and to die, to go to God in all the ways our inner two-year-old says, I can do it better. I can do it myself. Do not trust the Bible. Instead, surrender. To say, I will sit at your feet I will trust you. You are good. You love me. And Jesus and the cross remind me so even when I forget. All of us must surrender in order to truly live. I'll leave you with a story um, that Ada shared with me. Um, but she talks about that moment, and this is something that only probably, um, well, I'll just tell the story. Talks about a moment that we just brought Ann Harden home from the hospital, and this is our second child at this time. <clears throat> it was... Um, you know, just a couple weeks after we brought her home. And so now we're sort of parents with two kids, young kids under three. And uh, all the newness of being parents is kind of re- coming back to us. And so, you know, no sleep, um, no anything, <laughs> crying baby. Um, any trace of a former life or existence gone. You know, the only thing that, that there is to sort of tell these two happy, once happy, uh, cool people named Ada and Ryan are these pictures that are sort of hanging on these walls. We're not sure where they came from, but Ada says she remembers like it was yesterday. Uh, it was in the middle of the night, and Ann Harden is crying. Uh, and Ada goes to get her, and she's holding this baby in her arms, and she's looking at her, and it's as if the words were dictated to her, or maybe she's just close to, you know, just sleep, so sleep-deprived that she's close to um, just hallucination. <laughs> and she, said, she says, though, I just, I just remember looking at this child and just saying, I surrender. I surrender. And it was sort of this sweet moment where you just realized, I, I can't have this autonomous life if I'm going to have you. It's not what God has called me to. I surrender whatever you want, I want, whatever you need, I'll give it, whatever it takes, you have me. And that's when she became a parent, she would say. See, before Ada would say she was still holding on to her independent, autonomous, fun life before kids. Of course, I was. I, I held on to it way longer than she did. <laughs> that fourth kid probably broke me. But, um, but the more she fought it, right, and we know this too when we do this ourselves, the more we fight it, the more we try to hold on, the more miserable we become. The more everyone suffers. Because, friends, you can't have both. Something has to die. And whether you have kids or not, the reality is the same. Something has to die so that something else can truly live. Where is the gospel calling you to die and how? Where are you trying to have it, have, have both? Your ways, your life, and God's. That's the place where he's calling you to die and to surrender this morning. 
Will you trust letting God be God and not yourselves? Friends, Jesus came to surrender his will and die so that something might truly live. And that something is you. She may have life everlasting. That, friends, is the will of the Father. That's how good he is. And would we trust him this day? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word to us this morning, for this prayer that leads us out of ourselves and into new life, where life is really found, where happiness and joy and all the things that we are looking for and seeking through our own will and in other places where death only exists. We find it, though, in you. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us what it means to grow ever more dependent upon you as we leave this place. We ask this all in your son's name. Amen. As we come to the table, please know that this table <clears throat> is a table for all who believe in Jesus Christ, who, all who look to him uh, in dependence uh, in need of what he has to offer in his blood. Uh, and so in a minute, we'll, we'll break bread and we'll distribute those elements for all of us to take part in. Uh, if you're visiting with us or if you've been with us and you're, you haven't made a profession of faith, we would ask that the elements pass on by you, that you would look in your bulletin if it would be helpful. On page 10 and 11, there are prayers for understanding what Holy Communion is and also praying that the Lord might open your eyes to understand and see him and know him and, and desire him. Um, and I, as one of the pastors on staff, and I'm sure any of the others or the elders in this room or any of the members would love nothing more than to talk with you more about that if that's something you have questions about. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, as we come to this table, will you again remind us of your goodness to us? As we break this bread and as we drink this cup, <laughs> what you did to your son so that you might have us, would that just overwhelm us in so many ways that we'd be willing to die to in order to follow you, in order to proclaim your goodness to, to the watching world so that you might receive the glory. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.